Lord Jesus, we do turn our eyes to You. We want to look full in Your wonderful face and want the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of Your glory and the light of Your grace. Lord, help us to turn our eyes to You, to set our eyes on things above, not just here in this moment and among the gathered saints, but help us to learn to set our eyes on things above throughout our days, throughout our weeks, throughout our lives. We look to Your Word now. We thank You, Lord, for these past eight months. We thank You particularly for the book of Revelation. We thank You that we started this series in January and throughout this year You've been showing us, You've been revealing to us, You've been unveiling Yourself to us and showing us who You are and showing us Your glory and Your beauty and Your majesty. And I pray that the effect of the book of Revelation on our church would be to help us persevere, would be able to enable us to finish strong and to keep our eyes fixed on the heavens where our Lord will return for His own. Lord Jesus, we pray come quickly, come soon. We long for You to make all things right. Long for You to make all things whole again. And so we, we pray You would help us to wait with this anticipation of Your coming, that You would help us to live with this coming in our minds and in our hearts, and we would do everything we do looking for that day. You, Lord Jesus, will come in all of Your glory, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that You are Lord. So help us to to do that now. Help us to submit to You now, to call You Lord now in anticipation of that day. So Lord, I pray for one final time You to open to us the book of Revelation and help us to see. Help us to see. Give us eyes to see. I pray You do that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, for one final time in this series at least, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. And as you're turning there, let me give you one last reminder that the book of Revelation does not have an S on the end of the title of this book. It's not called Revelations. It is the... Revelation. There is no S. This is the final, ultimate, singular revelation of Jesus Christ. So now you know it is the revelation. For the past eight months, we've been meditating as a church family on the book of Revelation passage by passage. And so this morning, I want to conclude that series conclude that study by looking at some of the main themes, some of the main images and truths that we have seen that God has revealed to us. So if you're a guest this morning, if you haven't been with us a very long, this is a great Sunday to be here because you're about to get roughly 30 sermons condensed into one. Now my goal is not to detail all the various ways that people interpret Revelation or to give an exhaustive summary of this book. That would be an incredibly daunting task. My goal this morning is to simply celebrate the truths that we have seen. No new information this morning, I don't think, but just a sampling of some of the images in Revelation that should make our hearts glad in Jesus. 
a sampling of some of the glorious realities that are taught to us in this last book of the Bible. One of my hopes in preaching through Revelation this year has been to make this book feel a little more accessible and a little less frightening to us. Our goal in preaching through Revelation has been to sort of dilute the the fanaticism that's usually associated with this book. And really we're hoping that we've diluted the fanaticism by just simply ignoring all of that business and looking at what's actually there, what's actually taught to us. So that we can understand just how helpful this book is for our lives. I hope that that's what you've seen. I hope it's a little less frightening, a little more accessible, and I hope more than anything you see just how useful, how helpful this book is to our souls. Revelation exists to help us follow Jesus in the here and now, nitty-gritty world in which we live. Listen, Revelation is not some weird appendix that got tacked on to the end of the Bible. It is an unveiling of God's plan and purposes For his church, it is a revealing of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And it's a clear call for the church to wake up and for the church to persevere to the end. Revelation is a vivid display of the victory of King Jesus overall. Jesus has won, Jesus is winning, and Jesus will win. Jesus wins. Jesus always wins. And so what I want to do is I want to read Revelation chapter 1 together this morning. because So many of the main themes in Revelation come right from the beginning. And then what I want to do is highlight seven compelling images that are given to us throughout this book. Seven of the most compelling images, at least in my mind, as we've studied this book this year. So it wouldn't be a true revelation conclusion if we didn't have seven main points, right? The number of completion. So Revelation chapter 1, let's read it together. This is the Word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who was and who who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is 
and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the Word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. Well, as you can see from the first few verses, John is the author of this book. But what we learn here is John is not the originator of this material. Even though John is the author, he didn't come up with the content of the book of Revelation. John says God gave him this revelation, this unveiling to show the things that must soon take place. So John tells us that the truth in this book is about Jesus and it is from Jesus. Notice we see in verse 11 and again in verse 19 that Jesus Himself tells John to write what he sees in a book so that it could be beneficial to Jesus' churches. In fact, I was struck by this very point when we were reading the very last chapter in Revelation last week. Turn over to Revelation chapter 22 and look at verse 16. So John uh, sees this vision of Jesus in chapter 1 and Jesus tells him, write this down. Write what I'm about to show you down because I want it to benefit my churches. And then look at chapter 22, verse 16. This is how Jesus ends the book to John. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the door and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the, the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So here's the purpose of this book. We see it from the very words of Jesus in chapter 1 and in chapter 22. Revelation exists 
Because Jesus wants His churches to see His victory. He wants His churches to see that He is the God who wins. Jesus revealed these visions to John for the churches so that we would marvel at the greatness and majesty of Jesus. And so let's do that again now. Let's behold Jesus again. I want to show you seven images or highlight seven images that show us Jesus' greatness and glory. Seven windows, if you will, into the main theme of the book of Revelation. Here's the first theme or image we see. The precious blood. The precious blood. There is a lot of blood in the book of Revelation. There is the blood of the martyrs who were slain for their witness. The moon turns to blood. There's hail and fire mixed with blood. The sea and rivers turn to blood. Blood is flowing from the winepress of God's wrath as high as a horse's bridle. Jesus' robe is drenched in the blood of His enemies when He returns. There is a lot of blood in the book of Revelation. But most important of all the blood in Revelation, there is the precious blood of the slain Lamb. The blood that flowed from Jesus as He laid down His life on the cross. You see, for a book that most people associate with the end times, for a book that when most people think about it, they think about the return of Jesus, the book of Revelation has a tremendous amount to say about the cross, the death of Jesus. Notice chapter 1, verse 5, sort of at the end of it there, the second half of verse 5 of chapter 1. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Jesus has freed us from our sins. This is what He has done with His own precious blood. In chapter 5, verse 9, when the creatures around the throne sing to Jesus about how He's worthy to take the scroll, they say, worthy are you because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In chapter 7, when John sees the vision of the secure people of God, he sees them in white robes. Robes specifically called washed in the blood of the Lamb. Washed white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the picture of God clothing His people in the precious blood of Jesus. This blood, the blood of the Lamb, speaks on behalf of God's children. It protects them. It shepherds them. In chapter 12, the great dragon pursues and accuses God's people, but it says they conquer Him. How? They conquer Him by the blood of the Lamb poured out in victory in their place. The most important blood for our redemption and for our sanctification is the blood of the perfect Lamb of God who was slain, yet who is resurrected to life. In chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, we get a picture of King Jesus in the book of Revelation. We see King Jesus all through Revelation. He rules with a rod of iron. He pours out His wrath on idolaters. But Jesus is also presented as the tender Savior 
who willingly poured out His own blood so that sinners like us don't have to face the wrath of God alone. Jesus reigns over all through His precious blood. Jesus' glory is caught up in His work as our Savior, as the Lamb of God who was slain in our place. His blood is valuable and it is enough to free us from our sins if we trust in Him. And it is Jesus' precious blood that gives us the strength to endure the suffering and persecution of this life. It is Jesus' blood that gives us the strength to endure and to persevere. And that's the second picture I want you to see. The persevering church. The precious blood and the persevering church. The blood-bought church of Jesus is central in the book of Revelation. See, in interpreting Revelation, it is vital to understand that this was written to actual local churches who were in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. See, Revelation was not dropped out of heaven without context or audience. In fact, chapter 1, verse 4, the seven churches are addressed specifically. John to the seven churches. This is a letter to them. In, in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus Himself names the seven churches by name. He calls them by their very name. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation contain these letters from Jesus to the individual local churches. Each letter is specific and detailed about their specific situation. Here's why this is so important to understand. We cannot interpret Revelation in a way that would not have made sense to those early Christians in the first century. This was written to encourage real believers to persevere in trusting Jesus. And when we read Revelation in light of its historical context, we see that these churches that it was written to, they were undergoing intense persecution for their faith. Each of the seven letters contains a call to persevere, a call to overcome, a call to endure. And so that's why Revelation was written. That's why it was given to the Apostle John to be written down for the churches because God wanted to strengthen His church to endure to the end. It is written so that Christians can know that the Lamb will triumph over whatever evil that they are suffering at the time. Friends, Revelation is not written to satisfy our curiosity about what some call the end times. Revelation was written to help us endure the struggles and persecutions and sufferings of the church age, of this entire period between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. And the reason the seven churches are addressed, I think is because these seven churches represent all true churches throughout history. Yes, these are real historical churches, but they represent the larger body of Christ. They represent all churches of all times. His vision was not just meant for the church in Ephesus or the church in Smyrna, but it was, it was meant for our church and every church that worships King Jesus. In fact, the repeated refrain of chapters 2 and 3 is, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, this revelation is written for all churches. And revelation contains a beautiful picture of God's protection of His church. He not only calls His church to persevere, but He promises to preserve us. I, I've, I love this as we've studied the book of Revelation. 
The call to persevere is accompanied with the promise that he will preserve us to the end. In fact, one of my favorite images in the whole book is right here in chapter 1. When John first sees Jesus, he hears him first, but then he turns around and he sees this vision of the risen and reigning Lord. And where is Jesus when he sees him? Look again at chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Do you see where Jesus is? He is in the midst of his churches. John tells us the seven lampstands represent the seven churches, and Jesus is in the midst of them. In chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is described as the one walking among his lampstands. This is such an awesome description of Jesus' passion and love for his church. Jesus is present and active in individual local churches. He is not distant. He is not uninvolved. He is the Lord of the church. And he cares for and he protects and he provides for his church. Indeed, Jesus is the center. He is the focus of his churches. He's the one who gives unity and purpose to our local church. There's so much encouragement for us here. When we gather on Sundays, when we are the body of Christ, when we gather as a church family, we are not alone. Jesus is here. He is among His lampstands. He is enabling us to endure. He is feeding us and shepherding us and loving us and wooing us by His grace. Visions of the book of Revelation, chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 19, chapter 21, of the ones I could count, all have promises in them that God will protect and seal and shepherd His people for all eternity. Over and over again, we see these visions of God protecting His people, preserving His people to the end so that we see the message of the book of Revelation is the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church because Jesus promises to preserve His persevering church. It's the second image. Here's the third image I want you to see. The majestic throne. Notice the majestic throne. So beginning in Revelation chapter 4, John is allowed to see visions of what's going on in the spiritual realm. At the center of everything John sees stands a majestic throne. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This throne, God's throne, is mentioned about 40 times in the book of Revelation. Everything that's around God's throne points to God's throne. And most of the actions that John sees in the book of Revelation are emanating, are coming from the throne. Most of the sounds that he hears are coming from the throne. The activity of the book of Revelation centers on and flows from this majestic throne. Please understand, the purpose of this throne is to emphasize the sovereignty of God over all. 
He is on the throne means that He is sovereign and reigning over all human history, over all human rulers, including the Roman Caesar, and over all that happens to believers. Our God is on the throne of the universe. He is in charge. None can thwart His plans. None can question His absolute authority. With all that's going on in the world, with all that has gone on in the world throughout church history, the picture we get is God is not fretting or worrying or wringing His hands in anxiety. No, He is on the throne. He is in control. Friends, God is central. He is central in everything and over all the spiritual realm. And thus, He ought to be central in our lives, in the here and now. Everything is designed to revolve around this throne, including you and I. And so remember when we studied chapter 4, we said, if this is true, if God's on His throne, if everything centers around His throne, then why do we set up our little cardboard thrones and try to rule like we're God? Why do we do that? We are not God, and we are terrible at playing God. So like all the creatures in heaven, our job, our role is to fall down and worship Him who is seated on the throne and cast our crowns before the throne and say, chapter 4, verse 11, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. That's the third image, the majestic throne. Notice the fourth image, the furious Wrath. The furious wrath. So after the worthy Lamb begins opening the seals of the scroll of God's plan and purpose for all of history in chapter 6, we begin to be flooded with images of God's wrath on this sinful world. From chapter 6 all the way to chapter 20, the dominant theme is fury and anger and wrath and justice and punishment and judgments. The sealed judgments are in chapter 6. The trumpet judgments are in chapters 8 and 9. The bold judgments are in chapters 15 and 16. And surrounding all of these cycles of judgment, we have woes and harvest and wine presses and the fall of the entire world system. And the wrath and the judgment described in the book of Revelation is absolutely terrifying. It is not to be trifled with. We see kings of the earth would rather be crushed with mountains than to face the wrath of the Lamb. Locusts who sting like scorpions torment people in such a way that they will seek death, but death will flee from them. People are made to drink the wine of God's wrath poured to full strength. They are trampled and crushed in the winepress of God's wrath. People gnaw their tongues in anguish and a hundred pound hailstones fall on them. Now as we mentioned as we did our exposition through these passages of wrath and judgment, apocalyptic images are used to sort of picture and communicate something to us more significant than itself. And so the goal isn't to watch the news and to find events that loosely correspond to the images of judgment. No, the goal is to look at the big truths that these images point to. The catastrophic images in the book of Revelation 
picture, point to just how catastrophic sin, destruction is in our lives. This is how wicked sin is. This is how much it destroys those who worship the beast, worship the idols. Our sin is so horrendous and God's judgment will be so severe on sinners that it is as if all the waters on earth became bitter. God's judgment on idol worshipers will be severe and will be that bitter. See, these pictures represent a little of what sinners will experience in hell. The apocalyptic images echo the fierceness of God's wrath against sin, just how horrible and foolish our sin is in God's eyes. You see what happens? We go through life with this sort of apathy and indifference to ultimate realities and apocalyptic images. Their purpose is designed to wake us up, designed to shake us out of our apathy and indifference. These images are designed to sound the alarm in our souls. They declare just how powerless our idols are to save us and how they will turn on us and torment us forever if we are not trusting in Jesus. These images of the furious wrath of God are intended to draw us to repentance by showing us that nothing and no one but God can be trusted in this world. These pictures are God's mercy and patience on an unbelieving world. And therefore, the only logical response to the images of God's judgment is to turn away from our idols and to turn to Jesus alone. So hear the warning of God's wrath and repent before it is too late. The furious wrath. The fifth image I want to highlight is the defeated dragon. The defeated dragon. So starting in Revelation chapter 12 we're introduced to an unholy trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The great red dragon has been trying to thwart God's plan and persecute God's people from the beginning. Satan tried to devour Jesus before he was even born, but he was defeated. He was kicked out of heaven, and he knows his time is short, and so he seduces people to idolatry. He gets people to submit to the mark of the beast, and he accuses God's people. And the most important truth about Satan that the book of Revelation teaches is that he is a defeated enemy. He has been soundly defeated. Jesus has crushed him, and he will one day finally be defeated when Jesus returns. He has been defeated, and he will one day finally be defeated when Jesus returns. Revelation 20 teaches clearly that the dragon will be thrown into the lake of fire, and he will be tormented forever and ever, day and night, without end. And so, friends, the book of Revelation teaches us we need not fear the devil. We need not fear him. Satan is a defeated enemy. Yes, he is still dangerous because he knows his time is short. He still tries to deceive. He's still prowling around like a roaring lion, but, but he is defeated. He's defeated, but still dangerous. And so resist him, standing firm in your faith in Jesus, clinging to his precious blood. Jesus defeated the dragon. Jesus wins. Jesus always wins. The sixth image I want to highlight for you in the book of Revelation is the returning king. The returning king. So turn with me over to Revelation chapter 19. We can't do a, re a conclusion on the book of Revelation without reading chapter 19 verses 11 through 16. 
Because this is what everything in the book of Revelation is pointing toward. Everything is leading up to the glorious return of King Jesus. Revelation 19, verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus came the first time, he came in meekness and in humility. He was the suffering servant. He came as rejected by men. He veiled his deity and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. But when he comes again, it will not be in meekness and humility. When He comes again, He will come as the King with a rod of iron to establish His eternal kingdom and bring judgment to the unbelieving world. Revelation 20 and 21 teaches us that when Jesus returns, it will either be the lake of fire or the tree of life. When Jesus returns for every single person, it will either be the lake of fire or the tree of life. Those who worship the dragon will be thrown with Him into the lake of fire. Those who worship Jesus will get to eat from the tree of life and drink from the river of God's awesome delights. The book of Revelation teaches us that Jesus is for sure coming again. There is no doubt about it. He is coming. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7, the book begins, Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every I will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. And then look at the last chapter, chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 22, verse 12, Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to, to repay each one for what He has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is coming soon. History as we know it will not just keep going on and on and on forever. Jesus will split the skies. He will come for His people. And He will right all wrongs. And therefore, what kind of people ought we to be? We ought to be the people eagerly waiting for His return. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we are to be preparing ourselves for Jesus coming. Revelation chapter 19 says one of the ways we do that is by clothing ourselves with righteous deeds, with righteous acts, persevering the suffering and the persecution we experience so that we can ready ourselves to see our bridegroom split the sky. Remember as Charles Spurgeon said, we should wake up each morning with the thought, this might be the day Jesus comes. And therefore, we ought to be just a little bit disappointed at the end of each day that He does not come. The promise of Jesus coming, friends, does not make us lazy or apathetic in this life. 
no way. The promise of His coming frees us to do all sorts of good works as we await His return. And so the church says, come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the bride say, come. We long for Your coming. Maranatha, Lord, come. The final image I want to highlight, number seven, the eternal city. The eternal city. So when Jesus comes, God will renew all of creation. God will merge heaven and earth together. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, chapter 21 tells us, will be on the renewed earth and Christians will enjoy its beauty and its benefits for all eternity. And the most important truth about this eternal city that's taught in the book of Revelation is that God will dwell with His people forever. We will see Him and we will worship Him face to face. There will be no temple because Jesus is the temple. There will be no need for sun or moon or lamps because Jesus will be the light of this city. And because God will dwell with us, there will be no more sorrow or death, or pain. There will be nothing, a curse, or unclean. There will be only eternal joy and total satisfaction. Remember C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself desires that no pleasure, no amount of money, no job, no prestige, no popularity, if I find in myself that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only explanation of that is I was made for another world. And in Revelation 21 and 22, God has been gracious to show us a glimpse of what that city will be like, the city for which we were created, the city for which we were redeemed. God graciously shows us our final dwelling place so that we might live our lives in light of it. Jesus will be the center and focus of that eternal city. And therefore, may He be the center and focus of our lives right now. Well, with these images in our minds, let me close this series on the book of Revelation with three ways that we need to apply the message of Revelation to our lives. Three application points for this whole book. Number one, endure suffering with hope in a hard world. Endure suffering with hope in a hard world. Listen, Revelation makes clear that suffering and persecution and hardship will be part of this church age. We should expect suffering and persecution. Listen, you should not expect everything to go your way in following Jesus in this life. You should not expect to be taken out of the tribulation. Revelation teaches us that we should expect to go through and be in the tribulation throughout our lives. We should not expect following Jesus will be easy. Friends, we can endure a lifetime of suffering because we have the power of Jesus to sustain us and carry us to the end because He will hold us fast. He will protect us and preserve us to the end. And so the call of the book of Revelation is a call to persevere. Chapter 14, verse 12 says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. 
Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Endure suffering with hope in a hard world. Second application, pursue purity in a deceptive world. Pursue purity in a deceptive world. Church, just because it glitters doesn't mean that it's gold. Revelation makes clear that this sinful world is attractive and it is alluring. The pressures to turn to idolatry are abundant. But never, ever compromise your faith in Jesus. Don't be seduced by the Babylons of this world. No matter what it costs you, remain pure because Jesus has made you pure by His precious blood. Pursue purity in a deceptive world. And finally, number three, rejoice in Jesus' victory as you anticipate the renewed world. Rejoice in Jesus' victory as you anticipate the renewed world. This is what we see all of heaven doing throughout the book of Revelation. The redeemed saints, the angels, the living creatures all sing praise to Jesus for His victory, for His promises. In fact, listen to Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14 again. And as I read this, the worship team can go ahead and, and make their way back up here. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 11. This is what all of heaven is doing. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor, glory, might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And so friends, as in response to all that we've seen in the book of Revelation, let's join that chorus of worshipers around the throne singing praise to our King, singing praise to the Lamb whose precious blood has given us all the hope we need. Let's stand and sing, oh praise.